Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. In the previous episode of Critical Matters, we discussed the initial management of patients with ARDS. During this discussion, we covered the concept of lung protective ventilation, which includes low tidal volumes, PEEP, and limiting airway plateau pressures. These are the interventions that every patient with ARDS should receive. However, there is a subset of patients in whom, despite the application of evidence-based lung protective ventilation, hypoxemia persists and can be life-threatening. Today, we discuss the management of such patients, what some refer to as salvage therapy in patients with refractory hypoxemia and ARDS. Our guest is Dr. Robert Heise. Dr. Heise is the medical director of the Critical Care Medicine Unit and co-chair of the Critical Care Committee at the University of Michigan Hospital. He's faculty and professor of medicine, Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. His research interests include ARDS, ventilator-associated pneumonia, and quality improvement. Dr. Heise is an accomplished investigator, clinician, and educator. He is a member of the American College of Chest Physicians Guidelines Oversight Committee and the American Thoracic Society Quality Improvement Committee. Dr. Heise has spoken nationally and internationally on several topics related to critical care medicine and has a special interest in ARDS. He has published multiple articles and chapters in medical journals and textbooks and has been a reviewer for the Annals of Internal Medicine, American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, Chest and Critical Care Medicine. Bob, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you, Sergio. So today we want to expand a little bit on a previous conversation that we had in the podcast related to ARDS and really think about those patients in whom we apply low tidal ventilation, we apply appropriate PEEP, we protect the plateau pressures, but they're still in what we call refractory hypoxemia or still having trouble. And I think that one of the, the a, a good starting point might be, Bob, is how do, how do you define refractory hypoxemia? I know that in the literature, there's a variation of, of definitions, but in your concept, what would you call refractory hypoxemia? Well, that's a great point because there is a lot of variability and no uniform definition. There was an article in the Annals of ATS I reviewed and wrote an editorial for uh, where the Canadians resorted to their definition, which did not really in- include recruiting with PEEP. So for me, uh, if you're talking about moving on to some of the therapies you mentioned, uh, that would be patients who are not adequately uh, saturating or oxygenating despite high levels of FiO2 and appropriate attempts to recruit with PEEP. So uh, I can't give you some numbers, but ballpark numbers, let's say if your PO2 is still in the 50s when, when you're on 18, 20 a PEEP and you're uh, not doing well, I mean, that, that's close enough. But I, I don't have a single working definition and because there isn't a uniform definition agreed upon uh, in, in critical care medicine. And, and from a from a practical and tactical standpoint, I think that you mentioned something very important. I mean, in terms of it's hard to say this is the exact number, but you did mention in somebody who's already on 20 or more of PEEP. So I guess that my, my question is, this is not something that you make a diagnosis as soon as the patient hits the ICU, but really something that you consider after doing some some things first, right? I mean, exa- exactly. Uh, you mentioned low tidal volume ventilation. Sure, exactly so, uh, but it doesn't end there. Uh, when you're saying refractory hypoxemia, you're generally talking about a what we call Berlin severe patient who will have a PDF ratio under 100 on at least five a PEEP. That's a that's a starting point for someone who uh, might be uh, a trouble to manage. 
and then and then you recruit them. And if you if they're eminently recruitable, you might get by with say I don't know 15 a peep. And next thing you know, the FIO2 is dialed down to uh, 50, and uh, I'm good to go. I don't think I need to resort to these other things we're about to discuss. Okay, and I think that this is important because I often encounter clinicians who um, very quickly, before a lot of these basic interventions are given any time to work or applied, are thinking of salvage therapies of all sorts. And I think that it's important to go in a stepwise approach and implement what's been proven to work first, see how patients respond. And then if we still have trouble, we now start thinking about this patient has refractory hypoxemia. Uh, absolutely. You know, we'll, we'll get to a sort of a sequence, ECMO at the end, but there was one series that showed that uh, only 31% of patients in this one series who received ECMO had an attempt to be to have prone ventilation before they pulled the trigger on ECMO. So I think you're exactly right. You, I mean, there is an explicit evidence-based hierarchy here, but I do think that there are some there is some logic to this. So let's let's start with that logical approach. If you have implemented a lung protective ventilation, have optimized your PEEP, and uh, after let's say a couple of hours, your patient's in the ICU and you're still having hypoxemia, you still have a PAO2 that is not making you comfortable, like you said, what would be your next step or what would be the first tier of interventions that you would try for that patient? Well, there, there's two things I think about then. One, at this juncture with current evidence would be neuromuscular blockade to avoid uh, dyssynchrony, uh, and that might improve the patient's stead. We're going to have more information on that. We're part of the pedal network, and uh, Mark Moss and Derek Angus are the PIs on our publication. It will be out, I believe, at the SCCM meeting regarding uh, uh, whether or not the Acurisis article uh, is really the way to go. We'll have more evidence on that. The other thing I often think about is uh, body habitus. Um, Danny Talmore has uh, Epivent uh, 2 coming out. We participated here as a site for that. And patients whose abdomen uh, is in play, uh, post-op bellies, ascites, uh, morbid obesity, uh, if, I, if I get to 20 a peep and think that uh, I'm not uh, helping the patient enough, another thing to think about is we'll, we'll do transpulmonary pressure. We'll put an esophageal balloon in. Now, admittedly, that's not a, a technology that's uh, uniformly available, uh, but uh, uh, we have that ability. We have to switch out our ventilator for that. And in that case, uh, you, you could argue that at 20 a peep, the lungs aren't really seeing that airway pressure because we think about a plateau pressure, but plateau pressure incorporates the chest wall and the belly is part of the chest wall. So in circumstances where the abdomen is uh, exerting significant pressure, if you will, on the lungs, that can be another thing to do. So I, those are the two sort of branch points I hit at that, at that moment. So I think that, that those are excellent points. And like you said, I mean, first think about is there anything individual about this patient, such as morbid obesity, that might mean that what I'm doing right now is not optimized for their physiology. And I think that's a great example of where maybe you need more than just a driving pressure or maybe where you need more than just measuring compliance. And uh, esophageal balloons might become helpful for that for that subpopulation, like you said. And then the second thing that I would like to poke your brain a little bit more about is uh, the use of neuromuscular blockers. And obviously, it's a great way to, to decrease um, patient ventilatory asynchrony. There is one large randomized trial the French trial, like you mentioned, that has shown positive outcomes. But could you give us a little bit more in terms of practical aspects? Um, how long do you do it? Do you follow train of four? I think some people have talked about that. All you have to do is really target to your to your ventilatory support. And how long do you do it? Well, uh, you know, in a cure assist, it's done for 48 hours. But in patients in whom I do it, I do it as long as is necessary. In other words, at 48 hours, 
if you're if you if you remove neuromuscle by K and you and you desaturate, will I go longer? And if sooner than 48 hours you have uh, gas exchange that has uh, improved significantly, I'll I'll back away. So there's sort of a 48 hour uh, notion, but I I'd certainly go either way on that. In terms of training to four, uh, you know, um, that was a criticism of the Curious article. And frankly, I'm not sure it matters as much in the modern era with the Atracurium being uh, the agent of choice for so many individuals, that's broken down in the blood. Uh, you don't get the kinds of prolonged paralysis issues we used to see with vecuronium in the setting of organ dysfunction. So I'm not against train of four, uh, but I think really uh, it, it's not a critical piece here. If you're not triggering the vent, you're not triggering the vent. Uh, so I'm not against it. I think a, a more challenging and, and least evidence-based issue relates to monitoring of sedation during uh, uh, neuromuscle blockade, you know, we'll, uh, and it's a controversial issue, we still have a BIS monitor, bispectral analysis, and the literature on that has been uh, not particularly supportive or, or, or great, but uh, um, what else do you have? In other words, uh, the notion of, a, you know, family member walked in a room and a patient's pulse went from 100 to 110, therefore they must be too light with their sedation when they're uh, blockaded. I, I, that's not that doesn't really help you that much. I admittedly, BIS is a mixed bag, and I'm not going to dispute that. But, but for me, train to four, I'm not against it, but uh, I don't think it's completely essential uh, it, for guiding you. I, I'm more concerned about uh, ensuring your patients are sedated because, of course, neuromuscular blocking agents are, are not sedatives. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you point out to, to, to great, to, to great um, issues that not everything that we, we use has uh, the highest level of evidence, but as long as you understand what are the limitations. And I guess the other aspect that I think is very important, and we'll probably touch on this when we get to proning and ECMO, is also the the routine or the discipline of doing things a certain way in your unit trains your team to be very efficient in handling that. And I think that people can learn from that as well, At a, obviously at a lower level of evidence than maybe large randomized trials. But I think that be, having expertise in your own unit with certain things and having a way of doing it is always, I think, a good thing while we wait for more more evidence. I couldn't agree more. Process of care, we call that, and uh, having a solid process of care uh, is very impactful and meaningful for good care delivery. And and one of the you mentioned one of the studies that looked at ECMO in the uh, ATS annals. Uh, I've I've reviewed some articles that have looked at kind of the spectrum uh, uh, of what's going on with salvage therapy. And uh, that was very um, interesting to me. In two articles that looked at this at the ATS uh, um, journals, they talked about the lack of a established process for salvage therapy in most ICUs. How very few of uh, ICUs that they examine have a very defined protocol and process of how they escalate this. Could you comment on that a little bit? Well, we have one here at University of Michigan, and we try to, within reason, adhere to it, and ECMO is at the bottom of the page, which is to say these other things are attempted prior to ECMO. And as I mentioned to you, that, that article about uh, some of these modalities not having been attempted prior to ECMO cannulation uh, is, is a concern. So uh, we have a protocol because we, we, we have a lot of these patients. We get patients for, referred in. And, uh, you know, and also because we're all here big believers in process of care and not just sort of approaching things willy-nilly. And I think that's an important point. And, and as, as people will find out if they don't know yet, ECMO has a long story in the University of Michigan, and it's been, there's tremendous experience there. So I think that 
we'll we'll touch on that a little bit more. So after you've optimized Bob for the individual patient, and the example you gave was the morbid obese patient, you've uh, um, you you you've thought about neuromuscular blockers. If you're still having trouble, what's next? Well, propositioning uh, is uh, on my list, right? And uh, and the Proceva article, which came out a few years ago now, uh, I think had a incredible uh, mortality benefit. And then there's been a lot of reading of the tea leaves there with regard to what that meant. Either they got lucky or they finally got it right, if you will. I mean, earlier proning articles and studies have been negative, were criticized for lack of use of lung protective inhalation, not keeping them uh, proned long enough, uh, things of that sort. And so if you look at the historic timeline, it looks like things are getting better until finally Proceva hit and hit big. Uh, if you look at a force plot for treatment effect, it, it was pretty dramatic. But it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I'm, I'm sold, uh, you know, and it's become a go-to thing at that point, particularly in the context of other uh, uh, potential go-to things, such as uh, oscillation, which uh, has had some negative studies. So uh, uh, I think proning should be done. Now, I've been around the country. I've got a good friend, Iver Douglas, at Colorado. They're big believers in proning. proning. They'll, uh, they'll do it pretty quickly. Uh, in, in Proceva, they waited 12 hours. And so in other words, I'm going to optimize the patient. If I can optimize the patient, like I said, if, I, if I'm at 18 to 50% oxygen, uh, I'm not going to prone. But if we're talking refractory, as I've kind of amorphously described it to you, uh, that would be my next thing. And, and I think that in terms of talking about more of the practicalities and what we can learn from the proning trials that were positive, one of the, why don't we start with maybe uh, reminding the audience, what are the theoretical benefits of prone position ventilation in a patient with ARDS? Well, um, so uh, in ARDS, despite having lungs that leak, if you will, diffusely, there's still gas exchange heterogeneity due to compressive atelectasis. By that, I mean the weight of the lung causes smush in the dependent lung zones. And and so does the weight of the heart when you're lying on your back. So the distribution of ventilation is more equitable uh, when you are lying prone and the weight of the heart is removed, and the posterior inferior aspects of the lung where a lot of that smush occurred are now able to be aerated. So you're redistributing where the, where the delivered mechanical ventilation breath will get to uh, when you put a patient prone. And that goes back to what some people call as ventral preservation which, or dorsal preservation, which is kind of an evolutionary um, aspect uh, of, of biology. And uh, in terms of, uh, um, Bob, in terms of you talked about some of the things that people thought we were doing wrong. So one of the things that they did in the in the proning trials that were positive is they selected their population a little bit better, right? They only took patients who, A, were severe ARDS over very were hypoxemic, but also they standardized what everybody got before they got prone. I think that those are two important aspects. Uh, no, clearly, I, I should have mentioned that because I did mention other notions of earlier criticisms for not being lung protective and so forth. But that was another criticism was uh, if you're not that severe, you, you're not going to be helped one way or another. And so if you enroll patients that aren't that sick, uh, then you're not going to see what you need to see in terms of a difference uh, in outcomes. And one of the things that has always attracted me from, from, prone, from prone positioning, especially with our group that practices in a, in a diverse um, range of hospitals in the community, some very large and with a lot of technology, some, I mean, that are smaller, is that good proning is not about technology, but about process. Um, however, but before we go into some of the details of how you prone, um, there are a lot of commercial beds 
that have tried to capitalize on the, on the pronin. Do you do you use those? Do we need those? Uh, we do not have the luxury of having them, so my experience with them is, is limited in terms of visiting other institutions. So we do it the old-fashioned way with hard hard work and lots of nurses. And and it works fine, right? So as long as you train people and you and have listen, a listen, these people, as you can imagine, one reason this is not embraced, if you will, is because these people are sick and they're and they're plugged in with tubes and lines and and such. And it, you know, you want to get all tangled up. So uh, it it is not easy. Other than the right thing, other than the fact that it's the right thing to do, there's no reason to do it, right? In other words, it's not easy, but it is the right thing to do. And when you decide to prone somebody, so you you said, I mean, you start with optimizing everything, and they're still not not responding. At that point, you might consider, okay, my next step is proning. How long? Absolutely. Do you, how long do you usually let them prone? Minimum sixteen hours a day. I mean, this this is the point. This is one of the issues. If you look at the there's lots of ways to look at the proning studies that have done in the past, but I think clear. I think there was a Cochrane analysis, for example. Clearly, you're gonna you need to spend the vast majority of the 24-hour period face down. I think that has uh, been shown to be one of the reasons this can be impactful. So, minimum 16 hours a day, uh, and then flip them back for uh, the remainder, and then back and forth, but mainly down until you really get a break in the action and see. Uh, that they're oxygenating better. I, I had a colleague of mine text me about a case the other day. He said, when do you stop? I said, well, when they're better. Uh, but uh, uh, it is clear that uh, you need to be face down for much of the day. And like you said, I mean, you see how the response is. And when you stop getting that response um, is when probably are, when it, when a plateau is that maybe it's not working anymore. What about somebody that you prone and has no improvement 10 hours later? What do you do? Well, I mean, that's the point. Uh, so uh, we don't have, uh, well, no, we're ECMO Center, and oscillation used to be sort of in my algorithm, but uh, the Oscar, but especially the Oscillate trial, which we did at this uh, at this place, uh, part of the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group, had a, had a worse outcome. So that, to me, that's kind of getting towards the end of the road, uh, towards ECMO, when, you know, so you say you're prone and you're, um, uh, you're, you're peeped and you're paralyzed and uh, so forth, sedated, and uh, you're still not getting anywhere. And it's early on, right? You're, we're not talking about on day 10. We're talking more on day two or three. Uh, I will call my surgical colleagues. I, I don't do ECMO here. That's my surgical colleagues do that. You mentioned Bob Bartlett, who is a, no question, a, a visionary in, in this regard. And uh, so we, uh, we have a strong ECMO program and always have. I, I admit the fact that uh, for me, it's easy, right? You, you don't have to make a transfer. It, uh, uh, they're already in the building. But uh, if things aren't working, that, that, uh, that's where I go with it. Now, I would mention that um, the oscillate trial, um, you know, uh, it, the oscillators were not routinely distributed throughout the land either. We, ours are collecting dust in the closet following the oscillate trial, but there was a post hoc analysis of oscillate data last year showing the PDEF under 50 may have had a mortality benefit, uh, even accounted for confidence intervals. So um, it, when you have a trial that shows no benefit, you, you know, the true believers can say, like what they did with proning for many years, yeah, you didn't do it right until they finally got it to hit. Uh, Oscar uh, in Britain had no mortality change, and Oscillate had a worsened mortality. So if things actually are made worse, then you got to stop doing it. Yeah. But like I say, the post hoc analysis suggested that maybe the, the very sickest of the sick 
might benefit. But I, that's not back in my algorithm, uh, but I'm aware of that information and kind of a little bit tempted. And before we leave the proning um, uh, uh, procedure, any any recommendations, any practical tips, or what are the things that you worry about with, with, with proning that could be, I mean, uh, useful for our, for our audience? Well, I mean, there, are, there can be, in terms of sort of side effects or complications, you can get you know, sort of local necrosis of the forehead or bridge of the nose. There may be an increased uh, uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia risk. Uh, so not, not, there's no free lunch in critical care. I mean, everything we do has got limitations in terms of benefits and, and risks. But I think I am a believer at this point, and uh, I, I think it, uh, just like lung protective ventilation, unfortunately, is probably uh, underutilized. In fact, not probably. I can show you the data. It is underutilized. Yeah. So I think that before we, we jump into a little bit more of alternative modes of ventilation and ECMO, just to summarize, in terms of what the evidence would suggest right now is make sure that everybody's getting low tidal ventilation, that we're protecting their plateau pressures and utilizing PEEP. And those who we still have problems, evaluate for individual aspects of the patient like morbid obesity that might require maybe a more invasive or more refined way of optimizing um, lung protective uh, strategies. If that is done and we still have trouble, then think about neuromuscular blockers. And then the next step would be prone, prone ventilation, which like you said, is important to do for prolonged periods during a 24-hour period, so 16 hours or more, and to do it as long as we need to and as long as the patient is showing improvement. If all that fails, we then have to move to other directions. So you did mention um, oscillations. I think that it would be worth talking a little bit about alternative modes of mechanical ventilation. And uh, you talked about high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. And after the H1N1 uh, influenza epidemic, um, a lot of people thought that oscillation was the, the, the go-to therapy. And uh, I know of a lot of hospitals that bought oscillators and even governments that bought oscillators. And uh, it made sense, I mean, because we were keeping people at a higher mean airway pressure. We thought we were protecting the lung from, from veteran-induced lung injury. Yet, like you mentioned, the trials did not show that. What are your thoughts on, are we done with oscillation for, for now? Well, we are for now because when you have a trial showing harm, you really can't justify routine clinical use in sort of your algorithm. Um, and I worry that there might not be another trial. I mean, if you, if you kind of think about a randomized trial, how about a randomized trial where at that point you go to ECMO versus oscillation? That's an interesting and very, very challenging trial to do. But I am uh, intrigued uh, by the notion of recruitment. It, it would, like I say, PDF under 50. I mean, that, that's, that's bad, right? That's a very, very sick patient. Um, and, and it would be unfortunate if, uh, if, if there were no, it was not an opportunity in the future to maybe examine that uh, more, more carefully. But in RCT with that population, it, it, it makes for a very, very difficult trial. So I have to say we're probably done with oscillation, but I'm intrigued by the post hoc hypothesis generating notion that you know, PDF under one uh, under fifty rather might benefit. Interesting. And the other, uh, we were talking before we started recording the podcast that, uh, in terms of alternative modes of ventilation, Bob, I have observed. I mean, either in sign out or or visiting some of our programs, that uh, there is a certain amount of clinicians who like to use APRV or airway pressure release ventilation in ARDS. Could you tell us a little bit about APRV and where it fits in your algorithm? Uh, well, 
uh, it's sexy and it's trendy and it lacks evidence. And I try to know as much as I can about it. Let me tell you. Well, what it is, of course, is you give a mean airway pressure. You're allowed to breathe spontaneously. And episodically, you're released, if you will, to a lower airway pressure at some level of PEEP. And um, the idea here is that high mean airway pressure around which you're allowed to spontaneously breathe recruits the lung maximally. Now, I'm not against it. I just need to, you know, sort of the old state of Missouri, you got to show me. And I'm, I'm completely uh, well-versed in this. In fact, I had the opportunity to venture out earlier this year to Syracuse uh, where uh, they do basic science research, and Neil Habashi came in from shock trauma. Uh, it was, a, I mean, I, I'm all about trying to do the right thing and figure it out. And, and there's no question that they have a heartfelt belief in this modality. And, and, and if it is superior, I want to know it. Now, the literature is wanting. Uh, about a year ago in intensive care medicine, there was a Chinese article which had a small single center. The randomization was uh, they had sicker people in the, in the control group but it did seem to have more ventilator-free days. There was a pediatric trial in the Blue Journal earlier this year where APRV had a higher mortality. There was a, a EPUB done out of Utah where they were, gonna thinking about, they were thinking about doing an RCT. They stopped after 50 patients because they found the release tidal volumes were very high. There was a basic science article out of, uh, by Kavanaugh out of Toronto, just EPUB a week or so ago uh, in the Blue Journal showing that in a, I think it was a mouse model or rat model uh, the release uh, going from that high mean airway pressure to that lower thing can, can precipitate lung injury. So now you know the world's literature. And I don't doubt that I have talked to, as you have, people who use it and swear by it. And I'm okay with that, you know, it, it, that they believe what they believe. And, and I would like to see a larger trial. Now, I, I was recently awarded some money by the Chess Foundation, and we might uh, attempt to try to look at APRV, uh, uh, with, with biomarker um, endpoint, you, you know, uh, as part of that small clinical sort of phase two. But I, I would like to see a big trial because um, there are people who really believe it. Now, the problem with APRV is that there's a lot of ways. To, it's not like it's just as refractory hypoxemia. You know, there's not a single best definition. I, I think the folks out in Syracuse would argue that this must be tailor-made to uh, – the pressure waveforms of each individual patient, rather than employing a single a single one size fits all approach to this, and so they would argue any negative trials relate to not having done it right, and, and so um, and so there's heterogeneity in the literature too with regard to uh, what's been done. I, I, I looked at a recent submission for a meta analysis that that tried to look at the handful of very small RCTs. 300 patients. This is still under review elsewhere, but uh, um, yeah, that's one of the challenges. Can you do a meta-analysis when you haven't done the same thing to every patient in every study, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a gamish. So I am happy to um, see whether APRV uh, for the severe patient, the Berlin severe, the refractory hypoxemic patient, if you will, is superior. I would love to see a trial, but until such time uh, as that trial occurs, uh, you know, everyone's got their anecdotes. I've got mine. And, uh, and, and until we have evidence, I think, you know, it's very nice to look at lung recruitment, uh, but that's not enough. That's not enough to say you've got a superior modality. And, and I think that those are great points because um, in some patients where you've exhausted the evidence-based supported uh, interventions, 
Sometimes you might try things. I mean, truly as a salvage kind of last throw. But I do think that what is troublesome from an evidence-based perspective is that we still don't have 100% penetration and the things that have proven to work and people are jumping to the new and sexy where there's really no, no, no good literature to tell us, are we harming or helping our patients? Yeah, I mean, just having a equivocate on an oscillate, let me take the opposite point of view. With an oscillator, that recruits along really well too, and you, you think that ought to work, and it didn't. Or with the ART trial, it, you know, the, the very large recruitment, you want to recruit along these very large recruitment uh, maneuvers that they use with a decremental PEEP approach. You were, that's really recruiting and opening the lung. Everyone thought that would work. That improved harm. So you never know until you study it. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm fine with people having opinions, provided they recognize the limitations of those opinions. Fair. So I think that at this point, really, we should maybe jump into ECMO. And ECMO, I think, is fascinating because um, a lot of people talk of it as new technology. It's been around for decades. <laughs> it's, it's evolved. But yet, I mean, despite some some attempts to really study this, I think that we still have the people who believe it in, people who don't believe it in, and we don't really have the best answer. But clearly, it's utilized, and I think that how to utilize it with the available evidence in the best way, where you do it or you don't, and you should be thinking of when to refer patients, I think is definitely a worthwhile discussion. Do you want to start maybe just telling us a little bit about the, the, the literature behind uh, ECMO, and I guess CSER and EOLIA are probably the, the most important sure. studies for us. So the CSER trial published in Lancet in, I believe, 09 was done in the UK. And the, the randomization there was you get referred, you get randomized, and then you either were left wherever you were and told to be lung protective with a wild type, if you will, or brought to Leicester to get uh, ECMO. And just as our experience here, you know, where only about a third of the ECMO transfers actually get ECMO, uh, uh, many patients referred to Lester to randomize to ECMO, didn't get ECMO. And in fact, uh, the mortality benefits seem to be accounted for by that fact. And, uh, and that's fine. But they really, but the question, with, the criticism of Caesar was, were you testing the technology or were you testing regionalization of care? Uh, and uh, that, that people in Leicester know about ARDS, they care about it deeply, they know what they're doing, and you know they didn't put everyone on ECMO because they got them better without it, which is the right thing to do, of course. So that's what led to EOLIA, and I will tell you, it's one of the fun things is to, at the ATS, they have a session where they announce trial results live in front of the studio audience, if you will, and EOLIA was announced live this past May, and... Um, and folks, you can't make this this up because it was powered for a 20% mortality difference, and then the trial was stopped early for futility with only 11% mortality difference. So the Kaplan-Meier survival curves looked really widely separated, and yet it was a negative trial uh, stopped for futility. Now the other there was a lot of problems, one of which was a 28% crossover between the control group and ECMO, and if you take those crossovers out say they probably would have been dead without crossing over, you get a fairly impressive mortality difference. So the ECMO believers would argue this is a positive trial. The statisticians would say it was stopped early for futility. Now, there was a, a, a further analysis, a Bayesian analysis performed uh, uh, that was published in JAMA within a month. And, and I think it probably has a mortality benefit. And one of the things, of course, was patient selection. And they, they had very rigorous, these were really sick people. We talked about the definition of refractory hypoxemia 
before. These were even more refractory than that. Uh, you had to be pretty hypoxemic over various intervals of time to, to qualify. So I'm willing to accept that this was a positive trial based on the Bayesian analysis, based on the crossover issue, but technically it was a negative trial. So it was so funny because everyone knew the study was coming out when, and wanted to, be, that's, why the, that's why the hall was packed, I believe, that day at the American Thoracic Society meeting. And then to have it come out as a technically negative trial with a, with a big mortality difference. One of the things is, you know, you're gonna power a trial for 20% mortality difference. That's being pretty optimistic for critical care trials. Yeah. Uh, you don't see that every day. So um, it's, it's a fa it was a fascinating moment um, when that when they came out. And, there, and, they, and they, of course, there's been a lot of um, uh, back and forth since then. But I, the, Bay the Bayesian uh, paper uh, in JAMA being perhaps the most recent word on that. But uh, I mean, you can't argue that it, it certainly didn't hurt people, and it probably helped them. And, and you, you mentioned the H1N1 epidemic. That also was a big a big driver for ECMO uh, programs opening up because in that epidemic, I mean, these were young, previously healthy people who you who had refractory, extra refractory hypoxemia. You just couldn't oxygenate them. And, you know, I think that uh, if we were a 24-year-old kid, you'd probably want them on ECMO. Yeah. And, I, and I think that in the severest cases, that's probably the case. Now, hey, I'd love to see, uh, based on what I mentioned before, uh, oscillator versus ECMO. That'd be an intriguing thing in, in that that really refractory, refractory population. But I'm willing to accept that this that, that, that something happened uh, in um, in Neolia, and it was probably a good thing. And, and I think that um, obviously on, on a larger or a higher level, what it speaks also to is that um, the construct of the clinical trial, despite being what we consider the highest level of evidence based on scientific method, it has limitations in answering every question that we have, and it's not perfect, and it's very difficult sometimes to to conduct these trials, to complete these trials. I know one of the the commentary that is a, that has emerged out of Teriolia was that the enrollment rate was so low that to reproduce this trial again would take again, I mean, a, a very long time in a lot of centers, and uh, with uh, believers and non-believers, right? It, sometimes that that might be very hard to pull off. Well, that's the dirty little underbelly of being a trialist. You know, I, I use a quote by Bismarck that said, politics is like making sausage. I, I modify it and say clinical trials are like making sausage. It tastes great, but you don't want to know what's inside. When you, see the, when you see the PDF coming off the wire, it looks like revealed wisdom. But there's a lot going on there yeah. to get to that publication. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, you, you recruit patients one by one. And I am a trialist, hoping something good happens at the end, something makes sense. But on a on an individual patient by patient basis, it, it seems like it seems like chaos at times. And in terms of, uh, I think just to to refresh the, uh, our audience, um, some of the aspects that I think are important about this trial that we we can learn is, like you said, uh, twenty eight percent of the patients who were randomized to conventional therapy uh, actually did cross over to ECMO, and the thought was that they were probably going to die, but none of those patients crossed over at day 10, 12, or 13, right? It was early. That's important. Right. All of those patients... So you're saying that maybe they weren't going to die. I mean, that's absolutely yeah. true, and there's yeah. no way to know that. Also, I think it's important to, to remember that the patients who were part of this trial were very sick to just to enter. And uh, and I have uh, the, the notes here, but basically you had to have a, a, a PAO2 to FIO2 ratio of less than 50 
for for three hours consecutive three hours or a PAO2 FIO2 of less than 80 for more than six hours after optimization of the things that you talked about as well. So these were sick patients. It's not like, oh, they showed up hypoxemic and they just got randomized to ECMO or, 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 or conventional therapy, which I think goes to your point that in the patients that you would consider ECMO, the first step is to make sure that you go through that algorithm of things that work. And if they're still having problems, you still think that they might die from hypoxemia, um, then I think that uh, that's when you would probably consider. Are there any patients, uh, Bob, that, uh, why don't we talk about the people who would not be candidates for ECMO in, in your book, uh, in terms of you've done everything you can, but they're still having problems. Not every patient is gonna get ECMO. Are there some contraindications that you would consider? Oh, well, sure. I mean, obviously uh, the most important one being comorbidities. If someone has widely metastatic cancer, for example, I, I don't think that it would be indicated. Uh, duration of hypoxemic respiratory failure is also a consideration. Historically, my center here will not consider cannulating beyond about a week. Uh, so, I mean, I think those would be two pretty uh, clear uh, cut ones. And, uh, uh, you know, extremes of age, you could argue too. I mean, they're really going to put a a 90-year-old on, on ECMO or something like that. So, um, but the comorbidities, at least in my world, again, it's not a question of waiting longer than a week. They're already in the building. But, you know, bone marrow transplant patients, we, we have a lot of people who have a lot of uh, illnesses uh, at the time they develop ARDS. And uh, uh, you can certainly manage things on a case-by-case -case basis. So you can get a consult and see what they say, and then you can Tell the family you've done everything. I mean, with a clear conscience. But uh, uh, I think patient selection is uh, a, an important and reasonable consideration. You talk about triage. You know, we use uh, and, and rationing. I mean, we use explicit rationing for organ transplantation. And there's no question. Who do you select? Well, we only have so many circuits, right? ECMO circuits, and um, yeah, and and there are some clear-cut pediatric evidence-based indications uh, that we get referrals for as well for the circuits. So. Uh, there, it, is, it is also a situation of some rationing and triage, and, and there are you're not morally obligated uh, to um, give ECMO if you have uh, comorbidities that are overwhelming. And and in terms of of timing, I mean, you mentioned earlier uh, during the podcast that uh, this should be an intervention that we should apply early, right? I mean, for people who've been in ARDS for a long time and not responding or getting worse. It, it might be too late. Can you talk about that a little bit, Bob? Well, that's, that, that's what Bob Barlett always handed down. I mean, in general, I'll tell you what, when I come on service and you get an ARDS patient after about a week, I'm not that happy, not because I didn't use ECMO, but be, I, I happen to think that the, the situation with regard to the, the lung component anyway, put, putting aside any uh, comorbidities, it tends to be won and lost early, getting them recruited early. Uh, in, 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 there was old days with literature about oscillate with the first three days. To me, the first couple of days, trying to really be aggressive and, and getting uh, them recruited or, or treated, prone or what have you, I, I t my bias is that things, the, the die set tends to get cast. And so uh, the notion of uh, that, that the, the lung is going to heal particularly well when you're, whatever, say two weeks into an ARDS run and refractory at that point uh, is not that uh, likely. Uh, in the bad old days of high tidal volumes, you, what we used to see were macroscopic air cysts and recurrent pneumothoraces. So if the lung doesn't heal, it can be pretty nasty. Now that might have been more a function of 
a large tidal volumes, but if the lung doesn't repair, we say that most patients there it is don't die a hypoxemic death, but some do, and uh, and and there comes a point at which uh, you know, that you can put them on ECMO if you want, but the lungs aren't going to heal. Yeah. Now we, we don't have a day by day rendering. There is clinical judgment involved, so it's not to say that day eight you're completely unsalvageable and day six you are completely salvageable. They're, they're, but they, it does get factored in. There. And I think it's an important point. And I think that it's a balance, right? On one hand, implement therapies that have been proven to help first. Make sure you go through your, your arsenal of, or your toolkit of what's evidence-based. And if you're still having trouble early on, think about um, either referring to an ECMO center if you don't have one. I also think that ECMO is one of those things that probably should be done at places where they do it a lot. So doing one or two cases of ECMO a year probably does not make you an ECMO center, and uh, that patient will be better served in a place that does one or two a month or a week. And I think that that's very important. Yeah, no argument. That's called the volume quality paradigm. So I think that- Would you rather be in a that does two bypasses a year or 200, right? Exactly. And I think that that's something that everybody likes to do as an intensivist, or most intensivists like to do new things, but I think it's also important to to remember that and, and have clear criteria of what are the things that you do well at your unit and what are the things that may, because of volume, would be better served patients at, at another place, which I think is very important. So uh, I think, Bob, that as a summary, I, I do think that some very uh, tactical points for our, our clinicians at the bedside are that there are things that have been proven to improve uh, mortality, and that includes a lung protective strategy with low tidal ventilation, using PEEP, and protecting patients from high plateau pressures. When that should, everybody should get that immediately. When that doesn't work, try to optimize based on individual patient aspects such as body habitus. And you talked about esophageal pressures being of use in that population specifically. Neuromuscular blockers early on for patient asynchrony. And like you said, probably in the next coming months, we'll hear from a larger trial that is uh, that's being conducted or has been completed. So we'll have more about that uh, to discuss. Um, prone positioning, proven to work in patients who have severe RDS. Uh, the key here is to do it for 16 hours or more per day and to do it, I mean, to find a process in your unit where you, everybody knows exactly how, uh, how to contribute and, and do it in a, in a good way. And alternative modes of ventilation either have been proven not to work or there's no data right now. So we can talk about what where that fits, I mean, in individual cases, but it's hard to recommend at a widespread range. And then we talked about ECMO that's been around for a while and your takes on Eolia and how you utilize it in your patients. And I think that all of those are very applicable to day-to-day practice. And I hope that our audience, I mean, if follows those, we'll, we'll link a lot of these uh, studies that you've mentioned in the show notes so people can look at them. And uh, what we like to do at Critical Matters, Bob, is kind of close with a couple of questions that tap on your wisdom, uh, but are not related directly to, to ARDS. Would that be okay? Sure, of course. So the, the first question relates to books. And uh, it's is there a book that you have either gifted often or that has really impacted you in terms of how you think about life and critical care in general? Well, I'll be shameless and promote my own critical care textbook pub- published by Springer. Uh, so I had the opportunity to create a, a new format, case-based uh, critical care textbook. And, and what we tried to do, I also write for up-to-date. I'm very proud of what I write for up-to-date on mechanical ventilation. But we felt that 
that was not really uh, contextualized sufficiently. So we made a case-based uh, book. So I gift it. Well, our, you know, our, I, our residents uh, can go uh, through our firewall and download it as a PDF. So I, I'm not quite giving it for free, but they are getting it for free. It's a PDF uh, available to them. Excellent. So we'll make sure that we 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 link that in the in the show notes uh, um, for the book, so people can find it. And you mentioned it's case based, so it's really cases around different pearls in critical care. Is that correct? Absolutely. Every every uh, chapter starts with a case and a sort of a question uh, with the answer, and then we have the principles of management section, and then the last section is what I, I, I dubbed contour uh, evidence contour, which is to say what are the things that are in evolution and controversial uh, with regard to the management of that particular uh, kind of kind of patient. Excellent. And I think that uh, um, there's obviously uh, information available everywhere right now, but I think that putting things together around what's practical based on cases and also an appraisal, I mean, uh, of what we know and what we don't know is always going to be very useful for our uh, trainees, but also for our practitioners in, 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 in real life. So the next question, Bob, is what did you believe to be true in medicine or life that most other people don't believe? Well, I don't know if they don't believe it, but you could tell from our earlier uh, conversation, I, I'm kind of known a little bit at times to torture my house staff with quotes. And my favorite one is Pasteur, which is chance favors only the prepared mind. And I think that's true in medicine, and I think that's true in life, uh, particularly in medicine and critical care when you're confronted with a very complex a milieu of variables to try to sort out in your brain. And you can't, I, get, I guess you can't get to where you want to get with the patient without having a sense of where you want to be and, and, and looking at things on the fly to, to manage. And so a chance favors only a prepared mind. That's, that's my all-time favorite quote. Excellent. And I think that, uh, it, like you said, I mean, quotes are very powerful in terms of they're easy to remember, but they capture really a lot of wisdom that applies to, to what, how we, we conduct ourselves on a daily basis. And the final question is, what would you want every intensivist who's listening to us to know? Well, I'll go back and quote again, because this is funny, because that Pasteur quote is so eloquent. The quote that I get teased about that is mine, uh, if you want to give the evidence, uh, the internist rather, one quote, it's, uh, dry them out and wean them. That's my, <laughs> that's my aphorism. Uh, certainly, people accumulate fluid when they're sick, and they need to pee it out when they're better. So, uh I'll, I, you know, I, I sometimes tell people, I, I, I see, I only know five things, and that's one of them, and it's got me this far, so I'm, I'm sticking to it. Dry them out and wean them, and I think that that's what patients really want: wean them and get them home, right? And exactly. Uh, and I know that that I think you, you have actually, uh, I heard you talk about the ABCDF bundle as a bundle of a lifetime. And I think it applies exactly to, to that concept, right? I mean, in terms of drying up and weaning them is part of that and getting people back to, to real life. So I think that's a great place uh, to stop. Um, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we might uh, talk a little bit more about after SCCM, see what, what new evidence comes in the direction of neuromuscular blockers and what our trials might be coming up in mechanical ventilation. And uh, we look forward to having you back as a guest on Critical Matters. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play.